Here's why. Like, you know, we've like seen good quarterbacks really anyhow that if they work out the two world-class players. The Lions just turned everything around. I mean, even the other week. Here's my problem. I don't think they're going to Roll Tide! Welcome to the new edition of the EO Smith Sports Talk Podcast. Welcome into the EO Smith Sports Talk Podcast. We've got a busy week, NFL, some NBA, some college football, and our weekly soccer. But we start with the NFL crew, Leon, Nolan, Alex, Toby, and myself. And we've got to start with the Kansas City Chiefs. They fall on Sunday night football to the Buffalo Bills. They're now at 2-3 and three in last place in the AFC West, something none of us saw coming after week five. So, Leon, is it an overreaction to say this Chiefs team will not win the AFC this year? They will not win the AFC. The Bills look dominant. They look at the new team in the AFC. That Chiefs defense is trash. They cannot stop the, the Bills offense. And it, they, were, they haven't been able to stop the last the last three weeks, too. So, like, that Chiefs defense is a, is a Achilles heel for them. And it's yeah, not just the defense. The NFL is learning how to defend the Chiefs. The NFL, uh, the teams that have been playing the Chiefs this year, we saw it with the Bills this week. They're taking away the 20-yard gains, the 30-yard gains, the 40-yard gains, that aspect of this Chiefs offense that's been so important to them these past few years. They're taking away Tyreek Hill and making them ground and pound. They're making him get the tough yards, the five-yard gains, the 10-yard gains, and the Chiefs don't like doing that. They like taking chunks away. They don't like having these seven, eight-minute drives. They can't do that. So once uh, these teams are taking away that aspect of the Chiefs' offense, they aren't able to put up the points that they've been able to in the past. And as Leon said, their defense has not been able to get stops, so they can't put up the points that they need to to compete with these teams. Yeah, I'm going to nitpick the word choice there. I don't think it's that they aren't capable of grinding out drives and picking up dink and dunk yards. I just don't think they want to do that. That's not how they want to play. This team is structured, like you said, to get the 20, 30, 40 yard gains to go five plays in, go 70 yards in five plays and then get the touchdown. So I think the, the, the fix in Kansas city requires a change in mentality from, okay, teams are taking this away. We can no longer run this. We need to move to putting in Clyde Edwards, Elaire's hands, to running the ball more effectively, to, you know, presenting a threat vertically and, and in the short passing game so that people respect that. And then we can start taking those shots downfield instead of just starting out the gates and launching it 50 yards deep to Tyreek Hill. I think another thing that they got to fix, and this we talked about this last week too, I think, was the turnover issue. Turnovers continue to be a self-inflicted issue on the Chiefs, right? It's not like teams are forcing turnovers on them. In some instances, they are. I mean, there was an interception last night where Tyree Kill was open and he just tipped off his hands and it was picked off, right? These are the type of things. It's the sloppy, messy mistakes that the Chiefs have to get fixed. And then they can start maybe shifting in mentality and, and spreading the field vertically, presenting some semblance of a running threat before they can get back to what they want to do and take those deep field shots. That's the fix for Kansas City. Yeah, I, I totally agree. When you take away the amazing offensive passing game that is that is the star of Patrick Mahomes that that kind of that's what their defense is centered around. It's centered around getting people open for Mahomes because he can make great passes. I think um, you were right on the uh, mark there when you said that it was sloppy things. Like if Tyreek Hill doesn't tip that, it's not an interception. It's, it's a, it's a catch and it's going to be a great game. It's kind of the focus that they need to focus up 
um, so they can make plays and be less sloppy. I think that's one of the big fixes for the Chiefs. Yeah, those are all great points. And I kind of combine them all to say, I think defenses are taking away those, you know, big plays downfield to Tyree Kill and Kelsey, the 20 yard plays, forcing the Chiefs to run the ball, you know, dink and dunk, kind of like the Patriots offense, something that the Chiefs, Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes have never been known to do. And also they know that this Chiefs defense is arguably the worst in the league. I mean, they're Swiss cheese. They're giving up so many points every single week. And they know, listen, Patrick Mahomes has to put up 40 points to win this game. So he doesn't want to run the ball. He doesn't want to dink and dunk. So if I think the Chiefs, A, either need to find um, find their run game and, and develop that run game to get to take what they're being given by the defense, or B, that defense just has to figure it out, which I think will open up that offensive scheme for Andy Reid. Yeah, I love that you brought up the defensive issues. And I, I want to harken back to a few years ago. It might have been the year that they won the Super Bowl. I think it was the year that they won the Super Bowl. Does anybody remember the the attitude from the media and from fans and, and people across the league about that Kansas City defense? I mean, teams were running all over them. It was an, it was an atrocious, historically bad run defense from Kansas City. But then towards the end of the year, they started getting better and better and better. And Steve Spagnuolo's defense improved. And then when they ended up getting into the playoffs, they were shutting down run attacks, some as potent as San Francisco for quite a few series in that Super Bowl. So I'm not so worried about this Chiefs team right now because it's so early, because the issues that we're seeing from Kansas City are fixable or they've been issues that have been fixed in the past. They just got to gotta repeat that, that same sentiment, like, like the rush defense. So I'm not panicking on Kansas City. They got some stuff they need to fix. The only real thing that I think could kill Kansas City this season is a complacency issue, is a mentality issue. Not being properly prepared for games, not being mentally intense in practice in their preparation for opponents. That's the really only thing that, that can stop Kansas City from fixing these mistakes. And given the turnover issues that have plagued them to start this year, that could be a legitimate concern as the season goes on, at least for me. All right, let's talk about the Buffalo Bills because obviously last night, the Chiefs fall to two and three. That's the big storyline. But Buffalo, I mean, that's not a, a bad team they're losing to. The Chiefs, you know, they've played some close games against against good teams. It's not exactly like they're falling to, you know, the, the Jaguars. So the Bills need some credit. And right now I deem them the top team in the AFC overall. How do you guys feel about that? I think that's probably a good place to start. The AFC for me, at least this season, is, is pretty wide open. Buffalo isn't perfect. Kansas City hasn't played really well. There's a lot of really good teams like the Chargers. Uh, the Ravens have looked pretty good. I think for now, you could put Buffalo at the top of that list. But I was looking at the box score from last night. One thing did concern me watching that game and, and looking at the, the statistics from that game. Buffalo didn't really have a rush attack that, that was sustainable against Kansas City. I believe Josh Allen was their leading rusher with like 59 yards. Pretty much everything that, can, or that, that Buffalo was able to get done last night against that Chiefs defense was through the air. So Buffalo may be the best team right now, but if they want to sustain some success in the AFC, if they want to make some inland playoff pushes, I think they got to expand that ground attack, get guys like Devin Singletary and Zach Moss more involved in the run game. 
Yeah, I gotta agree. I'm surprised that Brennan didn't say the Patriots because since he's brainwashed. But yeah, the Buffalo Bills, uh, I believe, are the top team in the AFC. And I mean, their favorite, Josh Allen, looking like an MVP right now. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, as Alex said, the only real uh, um, challenge they the Bull, the Bulls the Bills might have is the run game. Um, I think they're a playoff team, but if they end up making the Super Bowl and they face a good NFC team with a good defense and it's a just well balanced team, I don't think they can. I don't think they can win that just because if that is a good defense with a good pass defense and a good run defense, I don't. I don't think they can overcome that. But I think the Bills are the best right now. Down the stretch, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to add something to to what Toby just said. I think if they end up making the Super Bowl, it will be because they fixed some issues with their rushing attack. I don't think the Bills are a Super Bowl, a team that can make the Super Bowl or win the Super Bowl, you know, rushing for having their leading rusher be Josh Allen with 59 yards, right? And 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 their second best rusher is like 30 yards on like 10 carries and it's Zach Moss. They need to fix that issue. And if they fix that issue, then we can start talking about them as a Super Bowl team. I think in general, at this point in the season, it's too early to start talking about teams in terms of deep playoff runs. Like, are they capable of doing that? Because there's so much that can change. You know, maybe we say this now and then Josh Allen gets hurt. Obviously, Buffalo isn't doing anything in the playoffs at that point. And, and teams are going to improve. Um, standings are going to change. The only th- real thing we can talk about in, in serious context is is playoffs. And at this point, the Chiefs, or sorry, the Bills have to be the AFC favorite for the playoffs. Yeah, I'd just be a little careful. I mean, I agree. I think the Bills are the AFC favorite right now, but it's not a clear favorite, in my opinion, because of the Chargers. I mean, you're talking about Josh Allen, an MVP candidate. Uh, Justin Herbert at the top of that list, in my opinion, as well. Um, and, And this Chargers defense under Brandon Staley, Derwin James coming back. Obviously, we know they have Joey Bosa. Um, that's a that's a strong defense. Mike Williams looks like a beast this year. They still have Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler, a revamped offensive line. This Chargers team that just got a huge win over the Browns, another team that's at the top of the AFC, they get that huge win. I think the Chargers are rolling, um, and I could see them winning the AFC West this year. Yeah, that I liked that Chargers-Browns game. That was an electrifying game. That's That was a really high-scoring game, and I loved what I saw from – the Chargers overall, but from their defense, their offense, uh, Herbert looked good. Austin Eckler is looking great. Um, I, I do really like the Chargers this year. Yeah, I agree. And I think they have talent littered across the field on, on both sides of the ball. There's few teams that can say that they have talent littered all over the place. The Chargers are definitely one of those. They're up there with, um, you could say the Chiefs, but definitely the Buccaneers, definitely the Rams, teams that have marquee, top five players at their position on both sides of the ball. And the most important one for the Chargers is Justin Herbin. He's looked great so far this season. He's continued to build upon his rookie campaign, but not only him, the offense that he gets to use, Rayshon Slater, Rashawn Slater has been great so far this season. Austin Eckler played insanely out of his mind last night, or sorry, yesterday. Uh, he has Mike Williams. Mike Williams has really come on, especially for you fantasy people. Mike Williams has had a great start to the season. Keenan Allen's still there. That is an uber-talented offense. And then obviously on the defensive side of the ball, guys like Derwin James, uh, ooh, their rookie too, Asante Samuel, who has played really well. 
this Chargers team is well poised for a good playoff run, and I see them making it. They could definitely give a Chiefs for the a Chiefs a run for their money as the number one seed in the AFC. Yeah, I mean, that game against the Browns was just a statement game for this Chargers team, putting up 47 points and an absolute shootout. If there's a concern you want to take from that game is the Chargers defense, but we know that that's not a concern for this team because they have one of the best defenses in the league. Um, Jay Herbo looking like an MVP candidate in his sophomore season, 400 yards and four touchdowns. Uh, his weapons uh, in the receiving game have been developing. Obviously, Keenan Allen, one of the best receivers in the game, and now Mike Williams coming out as a serious threat this year. Eckler is still Eckler, still a, a receiving running back and a touchdown machine. Um, this this Chargers team is looking really good this year. I think they can make a serious push towards the playoffs and uh, towards the Super Bowl this year. All right, staying in the AFC, let's go to the Bengals real quick because this week they put up a great fight against the Packers. They didn't get the win, but this team sits at 3-2 and two right now. They're in a tough division in the AFC North. I know that, but do you guys see any way they could sneak in as a wild card maybe into the playoffs this year? Potentially, but it depends on Joe Burrow's ability to stay healthy and his ability to feed Jamar Chase. That connection has been, that, that, that LSU connection into the NFL has been the cow their wins when that duo is playing really well when they're torching defenses the Bengals team is winning so long as their defense can put them in a decent position to succeed so it depends on that duo but mostly on Burrow's ability to stay healthy got it got into a few serious hits last night that I think he needs to avoid I think he needs to take care of his health I need to, he needs to take care of you know he needs to, to play the whole season that that's how they'll have a chance at that Yeah, I mean, and the main concern for this Bengals offense is obviously the offensive line. They just can't protect Joe Burrow. I know you guys saw the hit he took against the Packers this week. Uh, J- Burrow needs to stay healthy for this team to have any success. Obviously, he's a great talent. Um, and to do that, the Bengals need to improve this offensive line. So I, I don't see this, the, the Bengals being a serious threat until they can do something about that offensive line. Uh, but when they do, it'll be an electric offense, as we've seen uh, with the connection between Joe Burrow and uh, Jamar Chase. The weapons they have on offense, uh, Joe Mixon looking pretty good this year. Um, but, I mean, they just need to protect Joe Burr. I don't want to see him go down again this year like he did last year. Yeah, the offensive line is concerned, but the defense, the DBs, the corners, the safeties, I believe, that's a big concern too. Lane Devontae Adams with 200 yards, that's, that's a crazy amount. They got to get that fixed up too. But I don't see them being a uh, contender. I don't see them being a contender this year, but next year or – the year after, if they can get some good draft goals on defense and on the line, they could be they could be a wild card um, spot definitely. If you let a, if you just let a receiver get two hundred yards in a game, it shows that you have a a lackluster defense to say the least. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't think this Bengals team is playoff ready this year, especially because they have to play the Browns twice and the Ravens twice. Um, but in the future, I mean, you mentioned Jamar Chase. And Joe Burrow just look like a dynamic duo that will be playing in Cincinnati for over 10 years. Um, that defense, obviously not the best, but they have some pieces. You know, guys like Jesse Bates um, on that defense. I, they got Carl Lawson, I think, this offseason. That's a that's – a, uh, or Hendrickson, sorry. That's a strong, a strong core they have that if they can build around, I think Cincinnati is a team to watch out for in the future. Uh, let's talk about the Panthers because, you know, they were one of a few remaining undefeated teams. But this week they lose to the Eagles, you know, not one of the better teams in the league. 
and they just don't look as good the past two weeks. Sam Darnold not looking exactly like a franchise quarterback anymore. Are we panicking on the Sam Darnold experiment in Carolina, or do we still think they're a playoff contender? Obviously, they have Stephon Gilmore kind of locked and loaded to come off the PUP after week six. Yeah, I like the new additions for the Carolina Panthers, but watching the game last week when the stakes were high at the end of the game, uh, Sam Darnold started choking. I, and I believe if, the, if that's the case, when, it, when in the playoffs, I don't believe Stan, Sam Darnold can handle that pressure situation. I, I'm starting to panic on Sam Darnold. Yeah, I, I, just, uh, I see what you mean, Leon. Um, sorry, no one. But uh, what I'm – what I'm seeing with Sam Darnold is that he's not used to pressure. He's from he's a Jets quarterback. You have to remember this. He was not really expected to do much because he's a Jets quarterback. No one on the Jets is going to be in a playoff or a really pressured position unless they start to get a better franchise going just generally. Um, I'm not panicking on the Panthers, though. I like Stephon Gilmore, even though I'm pretty mad the Patriots gave him up. Um, Stefan Gilmore just is adding to that dynamic secondary. Um, I love their offense. I think their offense is young. I think they're just a very young team that can go very, very well in the next year. This year. Yeah, I'm not even going to panic. I'm going to agree with y'all on not panicking on the Panthers. I'm not going to panic on Sam Darnold yet either. I think he's had two rough weeks in a row now after a really solid start that have that kind of recency bias has shifted people's opinions on him so i mean first three weeks he was three touchdowns one interception and passing for over 300 yards twice and 280 yards once these past two weeks he's thrown five picks and three touchdowns and he's not passed the ball as effectively thus against the eagles and the cowboys those are two pretty good teams you could make an argument for the eagles not really being anything special but the cowboys are four and one at this point so he's played two pretty good teams and he's had some poor performances, but it's in stark contrast to his start to the season. So I think so early to make a judgment and to, to jump off a, a Sam Darnold bus and, you know, maybe this experiment has failed. It's too early to say that yet. We haven't seen enough of him with Carolina. We've seen some good. We've seen some bad. Where is the real Sam Darnold? I think we'll find out somewhere in the future. And it, it's probably somewhere in between that good start and that that bad kind of recent two games it'll it'll his success in carolina that medium between those two extremes if the team is winning then sam donald could be a short to midterm answer there yeah, yeah i'm not ready said, to give up on, oh, sorry, oh, sorry i'm not ready to give up on this experiment just because i mean they've given up some decent draft capital for him he's pretty cheap still on that rookie deal next year you know he's still under contract on that fifth year option I think next year is kind of the put up or shut up year for Sam Darnold. Um, but this Panthers roster, we didn't really have playoff expectations coming in. I think they kind of overperformed in the first three weeks. Then they play a good Cowboys team and a, a decent Eagles team and kind of show their true colors. So I don't think they make the playoffs, but Christian McCaffrey coming back this week is going to provide a, a real boost to Sam Darnold. They haven't had him the last two weeks, and that could be the reason they've lost the last two weeks. So I'll be curious to see, you know, Stefan Gilmore, Christian McCaffrey. That's about as two good additions you can have on both sides of the ball as any team will have this season. Um, and so this Panthers team could turn around, and I still think Sam Darnold will be a franchise quarterback for them in the future. 
Yeah, and when I said I don't, I'm worrying for Sam Darnold. I'm worrying for him in like right now. He coming from the Jets is hard for any quarterback because you're then going to potentially a better team and they're expecting more of you. So I think people there are panicking because they're seeing the the Jets version of Sam Darnold still. I think he needs to adjust to the more high caliber offense. Um, getting Christian McCaffrey will definitely help him kind of adjust because that'll take a lot of the weight off of him um, with Christian Christian McCaffrey bringing a ginormous threat in the running game. So I think that I'm panicking for maybe two or three weeks until he gets used to this offense. All right, let's go to the Titans. We've kind of talked about that division with the Colts, um, kind of an underperforming division. The Titans, I just can't get a grasp on how good they are this year. I mean, they get big wins like this week. They have bad losses. I mean, this team's all over the place. The defense doesn't look good. Um, Julio Jones, A.J. Brown, that connection with Dan Hill hasn't been there at all times this year. But at the same time, Derrick Henry looks like, you know, the most unstoppable force in football. And we know what A.J. Brown and Julio can be. That defense still has pieces like Bud Dupree's look pretty good. So where do you guys think they stand? Do they win that division? Uh, is this a wild card team or is this team just not going to make the playoffs straight up? I think they can win this division because any other team can't stop, really can't stop them from winning because those other teams can't win much. Um, I'm, they might be a wild card team because uh, gen, genuinely, I think Derrick Henry can carry that team um, just from his sheer force because of, how good of a running back he is. He is probably one of the best running backs in the league, and he's looking so good. Uh, I think that if if Tannehill can start getting chemistry with A.J. Brown and uh, Julio Jones, then they can be a playoff team. Yeah, it is. Go ahead, Noel. I mean, in the division that they're in, the AFC South is one of, if not the worst division in football. Um, the Titans are extremely inconsistent, extremely hard to read right now, but they're not consistently bad like the other three teams in that division. So I think the Titans do come away and win that division, but in the playoffs, that, see, that's where we run into some problems. I don't know how they perform in the playoffs. It's just a really hard team to get a grasp on right now. Um, I'd like to say they need to get the passing game going. I mean, obviously they need to get the passing game going a little bit. Derrick Henry has been the only consistently good thing about that team right now, obviously one of the best, if not the best running back in the league, uh, an absolute monster. But I mean, Tannehill needs to find some kind of a connection with the, uh, uh, with the, with his receivers right now. I mean, we saw him and uh, AJ Brown, one of the best connections in the league last year, they add on Julio to make him better and he can't get anything going with Julio. He, he can't seem to figure it out right now. If they can get that passing game going, I think they can be more consistent but it's still hard to tell at this point of the season. Yeah, Nolan pretty much stole my point there. I think this team is essentially a shoe-in for the playoffs just because of how awful the AFC South is. This could definitely change if the Colts are able to figure things out there. But as far as the Titans go, as far as the Jaguars go, those are bad football teams. They're losing games to start this season. They're not going to put up any real fight. The Titans are the only team in that division with a win percentage over 250. I mean, come on. Like they, they, they have to be the favorite in that division. They will pretty much, you know, 100%, as close as 
guarantee as you can get to winning that division, I think is where the Titans are at right now, which is good because they have some, some leeway uh, to, to figure things out and, and perhaps experiment with different concepts, guys in different roles that they wouldn't normally be um, different play calling selection because they're going to have that, that kind of uh, room to, to wiggle in the AFC South to, you know, maybe get prepped for the playoffs. I think that maybe that's a, a how they should approach the season going forwards. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the worst division in football. So it seems like the Titans kind of have to make the playoffs, sort of like the NFC East last year, where you know one team just has to make it. But I, I do not have confidence in this Titans roster, you know, to win in the playoffs or, or even compete really. Um, and we'll we'll see tonight, Monday Night Football, Colts versus Ravens. But I think this Colts roster is just disintegrating under Carson Wentz. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is la- this is Carson Wentz last year starting um, as a quarterback because, you know, they trade the draft capital to Philadelphia after it didn't work out in Philly, and it's not working out in Indianapolis with his old coach who it worked out with before. I mean, if this won't work out, I'm not sure what will. I see him going to the bench, uh, and that's that. Let's go to the Cardinals because they are the last remaining undefeated team in the league. Kyler Murray, probably the MVP favorite. Uh, this Cardinals offense looks dynamic. The defense, guys like Chandler Jones, Buda Baker, J.J. Watt, this team looks special in my opinion. Do we see them as the favorites in the NFC, favorites in the NFL overall, um, or you know, second, third string favorite in the NFC? I think it's too early to tell on that. I think they, they pulled out a win versus the Rams, pretty a, a solid win and and a lot of people looked at that and kind of anointed them as the best team in the nfc or, or the best team at least in the nfc west i don't know if i'm there yet i think the nfc west has too many good teams that you're gonna have to play twice and the nfc in general has too many good teams that you're gonna have to play to make a definitive statement on on a favorite i think this is what makes the nfl season so interesting this year is both the or both conferences uh, outside of you know a, a two maybe one or two top heavy teams per conference are pretty wide open and the Cardinals fall into that situation. They played the Rams once; they're going to play them again. I think they haven't played anybody else in the division. They might have played another team, so they're going to have to play the Niners and the Seahawks another two times. I don't care how good or bad those teams are going to be when they end up playing them. That's always a really tough fight. Those divisional matchups are always really tough. So. The NFC West is going to be one of those divisions that kind of comes down to the wire, in my opinion. Uh, as of right now, it's between, it's definitely between the Rams and the Cardinals with the Seahawks maybe being able to, to find their way in there if they can improve the situation there, which I don't know. We, we, let's see how the season goes on. Um, that's the situation in the NFC West, and, and that could very well be the situation in the NFC with the Cardinals and the Rams kind of towards the top of the list. But as of right now, I'd say it's too early to say the Cardinals have positioned themselves great to start the season, though. I'd have to agree with uh, Alex there. It is a little bit too soon to make a clear judgment about this Cardinals team, but I think we all kind of saw this coming. I mean, we saw flashes of how good this team could be last year. They just didn't quite have it together yet. They didn't quite have the chemistry. They didn't quite have the defense. This year, they do. They add Rondell Moore. Um the rookie in the NFL draft, he's looking phenomenal to go along with uh, D-Hop. They didn't really have that clear-cut wide receiver two last year. It was uh, 
Christian Kirk, who again looks a lot better this year as a wide receiver three. Um, but I mean, we definitely saw flashes of what this team could be last year. Um, they beat the Rams, who were the best team in the NFL at the time they played them. They just beat the uh, 49ers this week. They they are looking like favorites in the West. Um, although I would again put the Rams up there. It's it's an interesting division to watch. Um, one of the best in the NFL, but. I think right now, if we're talking right now, the Cardinals are the favorite in this division. Yeah, I just like to add on. I think that Rondell Moore addition has been underappreciated, but has changed the dynamic of this offense because it's freed up DeAndre Hopkins and it's given Kyler Murray another legitimate option in that offense. I don't think he really had before. Christian Kirk sure was was all right last year, but I think Rondell Moore is definitely a step up at that wide receiver two position. And that's allowed them to kind of open up the playbook, not necessarily open up the playbook, but, but open up the, the, the options that Kyler Murray has to throw the ball to. It's been an underappreciated move that, that has paid off incredibly so far this season. And, and I anticipate it will continue as Rondell Moore continues to develop and, and improve as a player. Yeah. I'm taking this Cardinals team as the uh, favorite in the NFC West and the favorite in the entire NFC right now. But listen, this NFC West, we've talked about it, the toughest division in football for my money, um, and it's got a clear top two. It's the LA Rams and obviously the Cardinals. I think the 49ers and the Seahawks, you know, Seahawks now don't have Russell Wilson. The 49ers going through their quarterback kind of controversy. I don't think either team can compete for the playoffs this year, but there's still strong teams that will give the Rams and the Cardinals fits this year. So I kind of see it coming down to, you know, which team can go 4-0 against the Seahawks and the 49ers and which team doesn't. That's who's going to win the division. And the other team is going to have to win through the wild card. But I think those two teams are, you know, better than the Bucs or maybe as good as the Bucs. I think it's a three-team race in the NFC overall. And in the AFC, I mean, do we really think the Buffalo Bills or the Chargers, maybe the Chiefs, the Browns, can these teams compete with, you know, the – the Cardinals or the Rams. Cause I think those two teams are, you know, really uh, kind of strong offensively and defensively. The Cardinals might be the most balanced team in football and the Rams. We know they have two of the best players in the sport on their defense and their offense has been so dynamic since Stafford came back. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say the Cardinals are the most well-rounded team in football. They, they might be through five weeks. I don't like. I don't think they have the pieces to sustain that, though. I think there's other teams like the Bucks who are just too talented on both sides of the ball. They have to be up there with with general well-roundedness. And I think as the season goes on, teams are going to start poking holes in this Cardinals defense, and and they're no longer going to kind of hold that spot. It's just a matter of time as as teams start to kind of figure them out. Yeah, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess, for the NFC West results. Uh, let's go to the MVP talk because we're talking about Kyler and the Cardinals. We've talked about Stafford and the Rams. We've talked about Josh Allen and the Bills, Justin Herbert and the Chargers. Those four guys, probably the clear favorites right now. Who would you all pick for MVP through five weeks? I want to run with my Oregon bias here and say Justin Herbert. He's led a this Chargers team, a, a good Chargers team, to the next level, he's elevated that team in general. He's elevated that offense to 
you know, much better than what they were doing last year into, I believe, I think four and one record in the AFC. Give me Justin Herbert. I I go with Kyler Murray, even though I said Josh Allen's looking at MVP candidate. I believe Kyler Murray, that five and no team, Arizona Cardinals, I believe he's a favorite. Yeah, I'm right with you, Leon. I think Kyler Murray is putting on a show um, this year, and I think he'll—I think he will definitely be uh, the MVP. I'm gonna go with Josh Allen at this point. He has looked absolutely phenomenal this year, leading this Bills team to one of the highest-scoring offenses in the league. Um, I think he leads this Bills team to an AFC Championship. I'm going with Josh Allen. I'm gonna go with Matt Stafford. I think. Um, Kyler Murray is the favorite right now just because their record's the best, but I see Stafford and this Rams team, you know, maybe 15 and two at the end of the year, uh, they could have the best record in the NFL. And I think Matt Stafford on that offense, turning the LA Rams season around is going to win MVP. Why are you guys so shocked? That's, that's just a line. That's, that's just a, the past Lions fan in him saying that like he, he doesn't think that for real no yeah it's definitely not gonna be Matt Stafford yeah it's definitely not gonna be Matt Stafford because Alan so, Alan has Alan Herbert and uh what was his last name Kyler have all played better at the start of the season and they all they all have much more room to improve upon their numbers and improve upon their play as the season goes on Stafford hasn't been as good and with that kind of run first play action style that they love to use in LA he doesn't have as much up room to go as the other guys and i don't know what you're talking about turning the Rams season around i mean the rams have one of the best defenses in the league one of the best wide receiver tandems in the league one of the best run games in the league okay maybe not one of the best run games in the league but what else do you need for stafford yeah i don't know know why this came on a zoom right now like that that was that was just a horrible call in literally every sense of the word He's going to turn their play, their playoff fortunes are going to be turned around. And here's why. You're telling me he doesn't have room for growth? I mean, this is a team that's played against the Seahawks, the Buccaneers. No, 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 no. Don't, don't misinterpret my point. I said he doesn't have as much room for growth as Allen, Murray, and uh, Herbert. I, I disagree. Like, Josh Allen just played the worst defense in the league last night and looked phenomenal. And that game is probably the top game in his MVP case right now. So he doesn't really have much more room for growth. I mean, he's not going to play many worse defenses, if any, than the Kansas City defense. So I don't really see how Josh Allen's going to, you know, grow his campaign for MVP so much more. I think but, Matt Stafford has the best – that their team's going to have the best record. The, the, the best uh, – <laughs> And therefore, he's going to be MVP. That was questionable. That was questionable. Yeah, this is this is questionable. Right, well, I'll be I'll be Stafford pulling up this is a barely above average quarterback, and you're trying to compare him to the. Okay, future. hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Oh, no. Just because Matthew Savage is not the MVP does not mean you get to say he's barely above the average. Okay, okay? okay. like That's you, you, you need fair. to be careful with how you word that. Stafford is an incredibly talented quarterback. He's not in the MVP conversation, or at least he shouldn't be in the MVP conversation. But he's still one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I will not have this Matthew Savage right, slander. Oh, that's why Big China has him. <laughs> <laughs> right, Fantasy let's, reference. Let's make some picks. We'll start with tonight's Monday Night Football, Baltimore Ravens versus Indianapolis Colts. Baltimore is, is minus seven in this one. Pretty heavy favorites. We'll start with Alex. Where do you, Who do you like on this line? I like the Colts to cover, but the Ravens to win. 
I think that's where that's where I'm at. I think the Colts are going to surprise a lot of people and make it pretty close. Maybe they win. They they lose by like four or three, uh, but the Ravens still pull out with the victory. Yeah, I think the Ravens are going to win. Um, I I don't think the Colts are going to lose by four because that's going to be a weird score, and I don't know how you lose by four, but. Um, I, I definitely think the Ravens could beat the Colts. Yeah. Um, but the Colts will cover, I think. Yeah, I've got, I've got the Colts covering, uh, in a low scoring game, but the Ravens winning. Leon. Oh, I, I had a Colts winning this one. Colts winning. Wow. I don't like that pick. I'm going to go with the I, Ravens. I see that. I can see that. I'm going to go with the Ravens winning by seven exactly. So I think this is going to be a push. But if I had to bet, I would probably go with the Colts. You know, the seven is always an ugly number in betting. I'd go with the Colts on this one. Let's go to next week's matchups. Chargers versus Ravens. Again, Ravens are favored by three and a half. Pretty surprising number for me. I love the Chargers at that line. Uh, What about you guys? Yeah, I I think I'm going to take the Chargers to win this one outright. I don't like the... I don't understand how that's the case. And if I had money, I'm definitely putting money on this right now because that line is going to move as people realize like, wow, the Chargers are three and a half point dogs against the Ravens. That's not staying put. Um, that's not betting advice. But that, that line is not staying put. So I, I, I'm i going to take the Chargers to win outright over the Ravens. Uh, I, I agree. I think the Chargers come out big next week, win this one big. Um, if you're going to bet on a Ravens by three and a half uh, – I don't know what you're doing there. I think I think the Chargers got this one in the bag. Yeah, that that's just burning cash right there. It's just not gonna happen. Yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Vegas right now. I'm about to put Chargers over Ravens. Yeah, I I got what Leon has. Same thing. This is one of those ones, though. You know what they say when the public is has a consensus on a pick in a game, it is almost always the wrong bet so i wouldn't be surprised yeah, vegas, vegas always wins vegas always yeah, wins right. yeah i, I, I don't know how they do it that line definitely looks deceptional but don't be surprised if the ravens kind of cover that three and a half let's go to the pats versus cowboys cowboys favored by four pats haven't looked so good recently cowboys looking hot what do you guys like on that line i like dallas to win and dallas to cover I think I think that offense is just too much for the Patriots defense. I don't think I I said Mac Jones was legit. I'm gonna stick with that, but that offense definitely hasn't been what I expected it to be. And especially against Trayvon Diggs and that Cowboys defense that has been surprisingly good to start this season. I mean, they lead the league in receptor in interceptions to start this season. So give me Dallas to what did you say? The spread was four, four and a half, something like that. I think Dallas covers that spread. Yeah, me too. I, I believe that's, that's going to be the – I believe a card Cowboys are going to cover that for. I can't wait to hear what fanboy Brent has to say about this game. I mean, <laughs> Dallas just looks better and better as the season has progressed. I don't think the Pats can compete. Uh, I don't think the Pats have the defense to compete with that Cowboys offense, and I don't think the Pats offense is good enough to compete with the Pats defense. I, I say the Cowboys went big in this one. Oh my gosh, y'all are hating on the Patriots. I mean, they did good against the Bucs. Um, I mean, what was it, last week? Even though, I mean, Gronk was out, I get that. But still, you're playing against Tom Brady. He's going to find a way without injuries. Tom is Tom did it without Gronk on the Patriots. He can do it with the Bucs. Um, 
the Pats held them to 19 points when they are an explosive offense. I think the Pats have a chance at winning, but I think it's a very low chance. I just don't understand why y'all are hating on the Pats. I'll take the Cowboys winning this one, but I've got the Pats covering. I got the Cowboys by a field goal for only because, you know, you watch Bill Belichick. This guy never gets blown out of games. He played against the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers demolished the Dolphins, but the Patriots, you know, come down to a last second field goal kick against the Bucs. This Patriots team is always going to be in close games just because of how Bill Belichick plays with field position, takes yeah. all the free points. There's never a blowout with the Patriots. I think the Cowboys are the better team, so I'll take them in the win. But four and a half, I like – or four, it's minus four, but I'll take the Patriots in that one. Uh, and that'll do it for this week's football segment, a long episode this week. So thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Welcome into the college football segment of the EO Smith Sports Talk Podcast. I'm joined by our guy, Alex Card, Walmart, Paul Feinbaum. And we've got one of the biggest upsets in recent history in college football – Alabama, as Leon likes to say, going down unranked Texas A&M, takes them down on a last-minute field goal. Alex, what are your reactions to this huge upset? Well, first of all, I think we need to quit it with the Walmart Paul Feinbaum because that dude has some of the worst takes in all of college football. At least my takes are reasonable and logical. Paul Feinbaum has some of the dumbest stuff to say. All that SEC bias flowing through his veins. Anyway, Alabama A&M. One of, like you said, one of the biggest upsets in recent memory. This was huge. I don't think anybody saw this one coming. Alabama was an 18-point favorite. 90% of bets on the spread were on Alabama to cover that 18-point spread. Just an absolute shocker. Alabama could not get anything done. Nick Saban had tried to warn us about this. If you listen to his press conferences, if you cryptically look at what he was saying, he tried to warn you. He tried to say that this team wasn't invincible like a lot of teams a lot of people were making them out to be. They kind of showed that against Florida, and it reared its ugly head again today in a hostile environment, 106,000 strong in Kyle Field. An incredible scene. This is huge for Jimbo Fisher. This team pretty much had been written off in the SEC West and in college football in general. They lost to Mississippi State. They lost to uh, Arkansas. They had two conference losses. Um, they were supposed to compete for the SEC West, and they didn't look like they were going to do that. Alabama was supposed to come in here and steamroll them, and that didn't happen. This was a huge culture win. It's a huge recruiting win. It's a huge win for the rest of the season for L uh, for A and M because it it essentially keeps them in the race for the SEC West. Right? If they win out, they have a, a a shot at making the conference championship. That's huge. This is a um, just completely unexpected win, and it totally it totally changes the dynamic of this season. Georgia now a, a head and shoulders number one team in all of college football. Their defense has been insane. Their offense has been performing as it should, although you know, it's not blowing the doors off of you like some other teams like Oklahoma did to Texas. Unfortunately, we'll get to that one in a little bit. Uh, but it, it goes to show this loss, I think, is, a, is an embodiment of this weird and crazy season that college football has been. You think in years past, like, if Alabama loses a game, you just kind of write them off for the playoff. You're like, well, they need to go win the SEC championship now. They, they, like, that's their only chance, their only path to the playoff. That's not the case this year. A one-loss team, there, there's not going to be many high-end Power 5 teams that are undefeated at the end of the year. There might only be one or two. right? A one-loss team is still competitive for the playoff. This is a, a weird year. Um, Alabama could certainly not be done losing. They have some challenging games the rest of their roster. Arkansas is going to be a tough matchup. Arkansas pushed 
Alabama for most of the first half and for a lot of that game last year. Uh, if they end up making it to the SEC championship game, it's highly possible they lose to Georgia again or lose to Georgia. That'd be their second loss on the season. So it's possible that Alabama's not done losing. But I think this goes to prove more than anything that there's no invincible teams this year, like I was trying to mention earlier. So Georgia fans, I know your team's been made out to be invincible this year. They're not going to lose. Their defense is too good. Be careful with that. because It is entirely possible if a team like Alabama can lose that Georgia could also lose. And they have a tough schedule. They play Kentucky this week and they play Florida uh, pretty soon coming up. Those are going to be two Super Bowl games for both of those teams. Dan Mullen always overprepares for Florida or for Georgia. That's a, a huge game down in that part of the country, that Florida-Georgia rivalry. So that is entirely possible uh, for an upset there. And then, and then college game day going to Kentucky or going to Athens for Kentucky-Georgia this week. Kentucky 6-0. and That's another chance for an upset right there. So highly unlikely that we'll see uh, some invincible teams this year, uh, some 12-0 and teams at the end of the regular season. So It'll be interesting to see if and where that Georgia loss comes, but it's been a crazy season so far, and this game is definitely the embodiment of that. Yeah, I mean, we we came into this week, or at least I did, thinking Alabama and Georgia kind of two untouchable, clear number one, number two teams. And now, I mean, Iowa gets a huge win over Penn State. It seems like there's not as much clarity at the top, and that uncertainty, certainly a good thing, in my opinion, for college football heading into the playoffs. Uh, let's touch on Iowa and Penn State, um, the game of the week coming in, obviously, three versus four, and it lived up to the hype, 23-20, Iowa wins. Uh, what would you see from Iowa that you liked or Penn State that you didn't like? Well, I think this game was kind of a story of the backup quarterback. Penn State was rolling with Sean Clifford on the field, then eventually he got hurt and they weren't able to play with him anymore. That was the marquee moment in that game. Sean Clifford leaving was the marquee moment in this in this game it totally shifted the tide it allowed Iowa to control the game from there on out and and end up pulling away uh a lot of people have been ratting on James Franklin for for not having a well-prepared backup quarterback for a situation like this but he did It, it, it was Will Levis who transferred to Kentucky so I think James Franklin for his preparation with his backup quarterback for his his you know, uh, acumen and getting his team prepared for this game is getting a little bit more hate than it should. But this this game and, and, and the Big Ten in general is wide open. And, and it's uh, it's the same with rest of college football. This season in every single conference is wide open. Big 12, wide open. ACC, wide open. Pac-12, what the hell is going on out there? Big Ten, what's going on in the Big Ten? Uh, so what this game does secure, in my opinion, is Iowa's position in the Big Ten Championship representing the West. Now, who meets them in the East is still up for grabs. You have three teams or four teams in the East that are ranked and, and that I think are ranked in the top five. I think Big Ten this year has Big Ten this week has five teams in the AP top 10. So those those being Michigan State, uh, Iowa from the West, obviously they're number two. Penn State still in there. Michigan. Um, Ohio State. I mean, the the Big Ten East is wide open, and for that reason, the Big Ten is wide open. We have no idea whether it's going to be Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State. Any four of those teams could take the Big Ten East spot in the Big Ten Championship. So it, it's a it'll be interesting to see how the the season plays on or the the rest of the season plays from here on out. Penn State has that one conference loss in their back pocket now. They're going to play Ohio State in Columbus 
That is a must-win game for Penn State if they want to make the Big Ten Championship. Ohio State, that's going to be a huge game for them as well. Additionally, when they play Michigan, I believe they play Michigan this year at home, but I'm not sure. It might be in Ann Arbor. I'll have to check on that. That'll be another marquee game for the Buckeyes. Uh, this game, though, huge win for Iowa, solidifies, essentially solidifies their chances of making the Big Ten Championship. All right, you know I love my, I love the upsets, so we got to talk BYU. The 10 seed going down to Boise State. BYU did not look great. What are your reactions to that one? No, this game was was a game that was, uh, I think, under the radar for a lot of people. Boise State wouldn't get in as much respect as, as they probably should have been going into this one. BYU, number 10 team in the country, goes down. I think BYU was a little overrated at that number 10 spot. To me, they feel like a kind of a 15-17 range team. I think that's probably where they're at right now after this loss. But I think this kind of kills any chance BYU had at making a, a major bowl game, right? They they looked pretty weak against a, a Boise State team that, although in my opinion, like I said earlier, was probably a little underrated than they should have been, uh, it's still a, not a very good Boise State team, and especially not a Boise team that we've seen in years past uh, from that program. So as far as BYU's chances at making a, a – you know, a possible New Year's Six or a group of five uh, in, in that group of five slot um, or making it just a, a major bowl game in general. I think this kind of goes down with that. Uh, Boise exploited quite a few weaknesses with BYU. Um, it's possible, like I said uh, earlier, no team's invincible. It's possible that BYU is not done losing this year. They could drop a, a few more games. So it'll be interesting to see how, how BYU reacts. They have a great head coach over there. Uh, that program's in good hands with, I can't forget, I can't remember his name right now, um, but it, it's in great hands with him. I'm sure he'll have his team prepped and ready to go, but this is definitely a, a mental test for BYU. Getting upset at home uh, to Boise State of all teams, it'll test the the mental preparedness of this team, and, and it'll be interesting to see how they react moving forward. All right, I got two more I want to touch on. The first is Arkansas Ole Miss. 13-17, another matchup we we're all kind of looking forward to coming into the weekend, and it didn't disappoint. Another barn burner, 52-51, to Ole Miss comes out on top. Uh, Arkansas now drops two straight. So what do you think? How does that affect their chances um, heading into the playoffs? Yeah, well, I, I think um, – I I'm, I'm assume you slipped up there and said big, the, the uh, SEC championship, but I think this kind of kills Arkansas's SEC hopes. They're going to play Alabama later in the year, although – they did push Alabama last year, and they have a more talented roster this year. Alabama, it, it's extremely rare. It's possible, but it's extremely rare that you see Alabama drop two games in the regular season. I don't think that happens. So I think you can essentially pencil in another um, SEC, and especially an, an SEC West conference loss. Uh, that's big. I know Sam Pittman, the head coach there, was really getting on his guys about making sure that we, we don't let Georgia beat us twice. Obviously, they got flacked by Georgia last week. We don't let Georgia beat us twice, and they didn't, but Ole Miss was just the better team. Ole Miss outplayed them. It was it was a shootout. It was a great game for those who, who didn't watch it. Unfortunately, I had to go watch the replay because that was on at the same time slot as Texas OU. Um, but it was a great game. It was an absolute shootout. Matt Corral, again, was on fire, had a great – it was, it was – this was the bounce back bowl game and, and Ole Miss ended up winning the bounce back bowl game. Um, Matt Corral bounced back from his poor performance against Alabama. Ole Miss's rush attack, which Ole Miss is known for throwing the ball over the yard and, 
and putting up a ton of yardage and a ton of points. Ole Miss is, is ground game is really the foundation of that team. And, and I, they ran for 300 some odd yards again in this one. That's getting back to, to their roots and who they are. So this was kind of an identity finder, a refinder for Ole Miss and, and a kind of a reset button on the season after you know, getting torched by Bama. Uh, this is Ole Miss is, is because of this win, still in a great position in the SEC West and in a, in a good position to make a really good bowl game. They've got their toughest game out of the way in Alabama. They passed a, a tough test in a really good Arkansas team. So Ole Miss, essentially every goal that they, they, they want this season is still ahead of them, and, and it's still possible. They might need a little bit of help from some other teams losing, but it's still possible. So Lane Kiffin, it's rare, especially in recent years, that he's found his, his team in this position where they, um, to an extent, control their own destiny. So it'll be interesting from the head coach's perspective how he has his team prepared for the rest of the season. All right, now we got to talk about your boys down in Texas. Whether you want to talk about it or not, I'm not sure, but another loss this week, this time to Oklahoma, who, albeit a favorite coming in, but Spencer Rattler was so terrible yet again. This guy is going to the bench. I want you to touch on what you're seeing from him, how that's going to affect his draft stock, because right now he is just plummeting down the boards. And you got to talk about your boys in Texas because I could see them unranked next week, in my opinion. Yeah, no, you, yes, yes, great points with both of those. Let's just say this, Rattler's done, and if he's not done, then I seriously question Lincoln Riley's head coaching decisions. Lincoln Riley's not an idiot, though, so that's why Spencer Rattler's done. I mean, he is not touching the field for the rest of the season. This is Caleb Williams' team. This is his team. He is, he is uh, man, that guy was really good. And for those of you who watched the game, you saw just how much of an impact he made. This Oklahoma team, was struggling. They were turning the ball over. They were making mistakes. They weren't moving it downfield as well as they should have. That was with Rattler in the game. And then they flipped the switch. Caleb Williams is in at quarterback. They rush him on uh, on fourth down, 66 yards for the touchdown to, to bring Oklahoma back to within 14. Rattler was in for a few more series, and then Lincoln Riley yanked him out. And, and Caleb Williams was the catalyst for this comeback. It was, a, it was a heartbreaking comeback for Texas fans and a historic comeback for Oklahoma fans, and that entirely rests on the shoulders of Caleb Williams. Like I said earlier, this team totally flipped the switch when he was that quarterback. Oklahoma has found their guy. Um, this was something that the fans were calling for, although I, I'd say it was probably a bit prematurely, but he is now in at quarterback. Spencer Rattler is, is done, especially in terms of, of you know being some kind of high draft pick. I think it's highly possible that he ends up transferring after this season to try and find another program to, to maybe build his stock back up, maybe be a, a fourth or, or third rounder somewhere in that range. But as far as like the, the, you know, people like Skip Bayless before the season saying Spencer Rattler is the Heisman favorite, the number one overall pick, Oklahoma should be the number one team in the country. That's done. This is a very different Oklahoma team now though. Spencer Rattler was, was a passing quarterback. He was a pass first guy. That's how Oklahoma operated with him uh, as the signal caller. But that is, is completely changed with Caleb Williams now under center. Caleb Williams presents a rushing threat that Rattler doesn't. He's a big physical guy. You see him in person. I mean, he looks like he looks kind of Cam Newton-esque. I mean, he's, he's tall. He's a thick dude. Um, he's got surprisingly fast speed. Um, so it, 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 the way that Oklahoma looked under Jalen Hurts, where they're kind of methodical, uh, option rushing team, 
Caleb Williams can just kind of pound you and, and Kennedy Brooks, and they can be really physical. That's how I expect this Oklahoma team to move or to look moving forward. There's still going to be a, a extremely potent, high potent offense. They're going to probably shred a bunch of teams moving forward. I mean, they, they found themselves in this Texas game. Uh, so Oklahoma has a, a ton of upside moving forwards. All those issues that plagued them before the start of the season, I think have, have largely been solved with the change of Caleb Williams at quarterback. They are the, whereas they were the favorites for the big 12 championship now or before this, they are now the heavy, heavy favorites for the big 12 championship. This is a completely different Oklahoma team and it is a better Oklahoma team with Caleb Williams as starting quarterback. I'm going to touch on Texas now, man, this was a, an absolute heart crusher, especially watching the game as a Texas fan, the, the insanely hot start going up 21, seven, 28, seven, something like that at the start through the first quarter and the, the 75 yard touchdown first play of scrimmage blocked punt. You're up 14, nothing. We're not even two minutes into the game. Yeah. That faded pretty quickly, especially moving into the second half. I think the issue for Texas here, it's, it's kind of tough to put your finger on because it's a ton of different things. But the main thing is their inability to stop the run. They're not physical up front like they need to be. They're not physical in the lines of trenches like they need to be. Casey Thompson was getting hit pretty hard in the second half. That O-line was, was definitely not up to the standards that I think Kyle Flood, that's the offensive line coach at Texas, wants his O-line to be at and, and that Texas's O-line needs to be at in order to make moves in the Big 12. Now, they should improve as the season goes on, and Kyle Flood has said such things, but they need to make pretty big strides in order to, to be where some Texas fans think they should be in the Big 12 Conference Championship game. Uh, that that O-line issues, those O-line struggles, meant that Thompson was getting hit. He, wasn't able, he didn't have the time to make the throws. They were getting off the field earlier than they should have been if the O-line was good. And then as a result, the defense was on the field more. They were getting run down. They were getting run over. They were uh, on the field for too many snaps in Oklahoma who just kept kind of running it down their throats over and over and over again, whereas Texas could stop it in the first half, they couldn't in the second half. This is something that Steve Sarkeesian has stressed heavily as the court, as the season has gone on playing complimentary football. They didn't do it against Arkansas and they lost. They didn't do it against Oklahoma and they ended up losing this game as well. With that being said, there is a ton of positive that you can take from this game. If you're a Texas fan, Casey Thompson looked incredible. That offense was, was insanely good through the first half. I mean, they were up, I think, 18 points at the half. This is going to be a huge recruiting win. A lot of guys like Evan Stewart, five-star wide receiver, number three player in the country, he's potentially in on Texas. They're going to look at this game, and they're going to look at the insanely highly pulling offense that Steve Sarkeesian had, and, and Sark's going to walk into that living room of Evan Stewart, and he's going to say, look, this is what we can do with the guys we have on campus now imagine how we could finish games like this with people like you. So this is going to be a big recruiting win. Texas, uh, with two losses now, they bounced back after Arkansas after the Arkansas loss. They they looked really good. They looked really improved in the weeks following the Arkansas loss. I anticipate something very similar with Oklahoma. They have a really tough test against Oklahoma State next week. If they end up winning that game, they are in a great spot for potentially getting back to the Big 12 championship and rematching with Oklahoma. But it all has to start with Oklahoma State. And loss there ends Texas fans and the Texas team's hopes of making it to the Big 12 championship. So kind of a, a, a redemption 
story, if you will, starts next Saturday at Oklahoma State. All right, last team I want you to touch on, and then you can open up the floor, go wherever you want, is Michigan. Because Michigan, number nine ranked team in the country, they're now 6-0, and but they're sneaking past a Nebraska team that, quite honestly, just isn't that good this year. And they have some questions at the quarterback position. So uh, where do you think their answer is at the quarterback position? And is Michigan a threat to the top teams in the country? Oh, Michigan certainly is a threat to the top teams in the country. Uh, they struggled against Nebraska, but but don't be fooled. This Nebraska team, this is not the same Nebraska team that lost to Illinois in, in week zero or week one, whatever it was. This is a much improved Nebraska team under Scott Frost. And Scott Frost deserves a lot of credit for that. They have made huge strides as the season has gone on. And it, it, it showed itself against Michigan. They were able to push Michigan pretty much to the end. Michigan arguably shouldn't have won that game. Uh, there is question at quarterback, but Cade McNamara had a, a rough game this week, but he's, he's proven himself in prior games. He's, he's proven he has an ability to move the ball down the field and, and throw a, a second pitch at defenses, if you will. Obviously, the primary, the primary attack for that Michigan offense is on the ground, but when they have struggled, Cade McNamara hasn't been you know, a Bryce Young or a Matt Corral or uh, one of these high-end uh, quarterbacks in college football, but he's been good enough to get the job done. Um, so Michigan, I think they just need to continue making mistakes, continue improving in their passing attack, um, and and you know keep to their identity of of running the football and being a physical run-first team, kind of a clock control, clock management kind of team. That's what will get them places, and that's how they how they should approach uh, big-time games like Ohio State when they end up playing Ohio State. Uh, and then Michigan State, I think, I think Michigan State's two weeks away. That'll be another kind of big, tough matchup, uh, a physical matchup. Michigan just has to stay true to their identity of being a physical run first team, control the clock, keep Ohio State's offense, keep Michigan State's offense off the field. And they have a great chance to end up winning those games. And this is this is a Ohio State thing, uh, Ohio State game, excuse me, that we've been talking about for a while now, just because of how good Michigan has looked. They need to make some improvements before they can get there, but it's definitely possible this year of, of any year that Michigan can pull off the upset. All right, now I'll just open it up. You can talk about any other games that kind of stood out to you or any storylines you're watching, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I think I think the the one game that I want to touch on is is uh, Virginia Tech and Notre Dame. Notre Dame looks like quite possibly the worst one loss team in in college football that. I've personally seen they are a very bad team. I won't say very bad. I mean, they're ranked number four team in the country, but they are not a good five and one team. They struggle. They squeaked by Virginia tech. They, they have, they struggled mightily against Wisconsin. That is a bad Wisconsin team. Mind you, they were able to pull away in the fourth quarter, but that is a bad Wisconsin team that they struggled with for three quarters. Notre Dame is, is always one of those teams that, gets a lot of preseason hype because of their history, because of the brand, because of who they are this year, definitely have not lived up to that hype. They do have a really good recruiting class coming in. Um, they do have a really, a lot of talented young guys from the, the previous recruiting class that are freshmen. Now I think Notre Dame has to look at this season and, and say, look, maybe some of the guys that are going to help us win games this season, and then, you know, give them experience to, to win the big time games that we're going to play next season. Maybe we need to start playing them now to get that experience under their belts, to get them some some real meaningful game time, so that we can be you know well prepared for next season. And when we're in a dogfight next season, we say, "Wow, 
good thing we, we played these guys and got them experience last year. And this isn't the first time that they're, they're in a knife fight like this. That's how I think Notre Dame should approach the rest of the season. It's highly possible that they drop another game, maybe two. They're not going to make a – they're definitely out of the college football playoff. I think that's, that's pretty clear. I don't know if they're going to make a high-end bowl game this year. Maybe that's just – it's just not their year this year. So they should start looking towards the future. They've, they've built a really solid 2022 recruiting class. They need to make sure that they get their guys from the 2021 class some meaningful game time experience so that they're prepared for the big time games that they're going to play next year. All right, that'll do it for the college football segment of the EO Smith Sports Talk podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week. Welcome to the soccer segment of the EO Smith Sports Talk podcast. We're on international break right now, so we're going to talk some Ballon d'Or. The shortlist just came out for the Ballon d'Or. Uh, you know, just to clarify, goes to the best player in all of soccer. Um, European football, whatever you want to call it, kind of like the MVP award. I, I have a I have a mixed bag on the narrative and the storylines that are running around this, and we were talking about this a little bit before the show as well. Jorginho is, is is a name that's been thrown in there pretty heavily. I know Thomas Tuchel. I saw a quote from Tuchel where he he was pushing pretty heavily for for his central midfielder to win it. But let's let's just summarize uh, the 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 general consensus among the three of us that we had before the show for the people who obviously couldn't listen in. So, you know, I, I think that we, we all came to the conclusion, right. That Jorginho, as good of a player as he is, as important as he was to that Chelsea team, there is no way that he should even be in contention for, for, you know, a top five spot in the Ballon d'Or ranking. There are so many other players, right. And obviously, you, you know, you think of the basics, the Ronaldo's, the Messi's, those guys that always, whether they deserve it or not, are always going to be in the top five. Um, yeah. And I think we have we had a couple of shouts that we were talking about, you know, with with Gigi Donnarumma and how uh, important he was for the Italian national team. Granted, Jorginho was important for that team too, but you know, I think it was but, a different level. But uh, I, I think I, I, this, this is the point that I made earlier was uh, off air earlier um, was was the the Ballon d'Or kind of goes out to the the face of the team that wins the Champions League in a year, and, and a few years ago it got cheated where Lewandowski should have won it. But, you know, that's that's an example of that. Um, but this year with this Chelsea team that won the Champions League, there really isn't a player that you could just kind of pick out and say, like, that's the guy. Where in previous years when Real Madrid win it and, and you say, like, Cristiano Ronaldo is that guy or um, Bayern win it and, and Lewandowski is that guy and, and, and the trophy should have gone to him and it did go to Ronaldo quite a few times. There really isn't a player on Chelsea that you look at and say, like, He's the catalyst. He's the face of this team. He deserves the Ballon d'Or. And people are trying to shove Jorginho in that conversation. I'm just not seeing it. So for me, I turned to the Euro this year, which we had, and who was the face of that Italian national team? Who was the best player on that Italian national team that, that in some aspects, carried them to a victory in the Euro? Gigi Donnarumma. And I think Donnarumma isn't getting the consideration that he should be getting mainly because he wasn't as impressive at Milan and he Milan just wasn't a Champions League team or, or a, a team that did anything with the Champions League. Uh, I can't remember if they were in it or not. I don't think they were. But regardless, they weren't a, a, a team that, that did anything with the Champions League. And so that he's kind of out of that national spotlight from a club perspective. You know who's a player, though, that's it's kind of aggravated me that he hasn't been brought up is, is Karim Benzema. You know, for, for Real Madrid. 
I mean, with how good he has been over the last couple of years, do I think he does or the last year, do I think he deserves it? Maybe not, but should he, I think he should be in that, that top contention for that top three or top five spot. But I really haven't heard him brought up as much. I've heard a lot of people talk about how good he is, but his name and the ball and door don't usually go together. And I don't really understand that with how, how important he has been for this Madrid team to do anything to, to even compete for a title in the last year, you know, without him, that Madrid team would have fallen apart. And they just like, just like the, you know, crap Barcelona team from a year ago with Messi holding it together. It's the same kind of thing with, with Karim Benzema. And this season, I think that, I don't know if any of you would agree with me. Um, obviously none of us are Real Madrid fans. We have, we've torn down Real Madrid uh, pretty endlessly on, on the podcast, but I think him right now, him and Mohamed Salah are, are the two best players in the world. Obviously we're not just looking at this season. We're looking at the whole year, but I think that he definitely had ought to be in contention for that top five spot. I, um, I didn't mention this before, but I think a good shout if he remains on form is Mohamed Salah. Um, I think he's the best player probably in the world with the form he's on right now. Um, obviously, I wouldn't call him the best player in the world, but he's on like him and Benzema both are on a different level in terms of like their output and goals and assists. Um, but I think if we're talking about people who were robbed of Ballon d'Ors, Salah was a shout in 2018. Um, record-breaking season and having another fantastic season. And, like, I like that Austin brought up Benzema because, um, I mean, again, not we, – we've talked about there's no, like, shining star. Alex mentioned it of this year that's been winning trophies and carried the team. Um, I would put – my favorites as uh, Lionel Messi, Robert Lewandowski, um, Benzema and Salah, for sure. I wouldn't put Donnarumma in there. I don't think – I think he's a good player. Um, he didn't have that overwhelming season that a goalkeeper needs to have to be a contender for the Ballon d'Or, though. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of what's unfortunate with Donnarumma is he had such a great Euro, but he couldn't do anything on the club level because nobody wins, nobody wins the 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 Ballon d'Or for having a, a great league season, you know, what I mean? for the most part, right? You have to have a great like European season in some form, whether that, and obviously most of the time that's Champions League. Nobody wins the Ballon d'Or because they're great in the Premier League, you know what I mean? I, I just feel like it's so unfortunate for Donnarumma because he didn't have as much continental spotlight attention on him where he could display his skills. Cause obviously it's so much harder for a, for a, a goalkeeper to win the Ballon d'Or than it is for a, an outfield player, a central midfielder or a striker or something along those lines. So it, it's, it's unfortunate for him. I feel like if he, if he had the champions league season to display how good he really is, he would be a, a top five, a consensus top five for the, for the trophy. But um, he, he just doesn't. Uh, and I, for personally, for me, I'm not going to hold that against him. What he did in the Euros was was incredible. It was, it was a great goalkeeping performance. He was obviously, at least in my opinion, the face of that team and the best player on that team. He had the the winning penalty save for them in the in the final against England. So while other people might hold that against him, I personally won't. And I, for that okay. reason, have to throw him in my top five. Okay, but then what's the difference between him and Emmy Martinez? Um, cause I mean, Emmy Martinez had 
an absolutely astounding Copa America, an unbelievable season in the league, best goalie in the Prem, arguably, him or Ederson. Like, why Why would you not put him in, like, I'm not saying put him in the top, like, five, but I'm saying why would he not be a 30 if Donnarumma is? I mean, Martinez wasn't the face of that Argentina team, though. He wasn't the face no. of that Aston Villa team. That's the no. problem, right? With Gigi Donnarumma, he was the face of AC Milan, him and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He was the face of Italy with him and Jorginho and, and you know, Chiro Mobile. Those guys were the face of those teams, right? They were the ones that, that you know, dominated the headlines with those teams. I, I love him, Martinez. I rate him, Martinez. I think he's quality. But he was not the most important player in that Aston Villa team, at least to the media, who was. Jack Grealish. Jack Grealish isn't on here, right? So if, if you look at that, like, again, made it to a final in a Euro, right? But, and he was that, he was that big player. But here, here's the one that, here's the one that I, I think of with, with Alex's point that, you know, no one judges you based on your league season. They judge you based on your, your continental success or whatever. Where does Lionel Messi fall on this list then? Because he had, I mean, yes, he had a great Copa America, but realistically, I mean, he didn't, his team or, or the standout team in La Liga was not Barcelona, was not his Barcelona, was not him. It was Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid was the, was the big team. So if, if, you know, you don't judge a player based on that, based on all that success, winning one trophy normally wouldn't get anyone even close to the Ballon d'Or. So, so where does, in, in your guys' opinion, where does Messi fall on this list, I think, with that limited success? Yeah, I, I think Messi Number one, is, baby. No, uh, not for me. I, Messi hasn't doesn't have the accomplishments and and the trophy success, the continental success this year to put him in that number one spot. He's definitely top five for me. What he was able to do with a a horrendous Barcelona team deserves so much credit, especially now that we look at that, that Barcelona and how just atrocious they are. Well, not, not atrocious. I mean, they're still pretty successful they're just not up to Barcelona standards and for the most part Messi kept them up to Barcelona standards for all of last season that deserves some credit but like I said earlier people judge you based on your continental success based on your your success playing all five of the best leagues and against all of the best players and although it's it's unfortunate in certain circumstances it's how it should be because it's the best way that we can judge people playing the best competition, right? If, if we, if we pick the best player in the premier league and, and the reason that it doesn't go to the best player in the premier league is because the best player in the premier league isn't playing. I mean, they're playing good teams, right? But they're not playing Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Juventus, uh, the Milans, Paris Saint-Germain, um, Dortmund, uh, and, and, and Munich, uh, in the knockout stages. And, and they're not having, you know, major success on, on the continental level. Maybe they are, um, but that's not what the Premier League is. The Premier League is, is solely a English league thing. Um, so that's why I think it's so tough to pick the winner this year because there's nobody that you look out and, and point out and say like, wow, that guy was huge for his team's Champions League success. I mean, Chelsea was a, an out-and-out team performance with Jorginho, Conte, uh, Mendy, Pulisic, Havertz, all of these guys all of them had a, a relatively equal contribution, some more than other, others, obviously. But there was there was no team where you know the the 
the striker just kind of like stood out above everybody else because he had like 10 goals in the Champions League and, and carried them to success or was the was the out and out best player. So personally for me, that's why it's so tough to pick it. I'm so conflicted. And and I just kind of default to that European, that Euro 2020 team or the, the well, I guess Euro 2021 team and the winners and who is the best player on that team? Because there is an, an out and out guy that you can just look at and say like, wow, he is the he's the headliner on that team. And, and it's Gigi Donnarumma. Um, is Donnarumma the best player in football this year? I don't know, but I don't really know how to judge this situation because of how weird the season was. I think it's going to someone who has their name in their headline in the headlines, because as, as like, I think we've all, the one thing we've all agreed on is that, um, it is, there's no clear choice this year. Um, so whoever I feel like is in the media the most and who's being picked as the favorite will win it. So, so far I'm seeing a lot of Lewandowski, um, Messi, and I think Jorginho will get some votes. I don't think he deserves it, but I think he will get a percentage of votes. Yeah, I think none of those are terrible picks outside of Jorginho. You could make an argument for Lewandowski. You could make a really great argument for Lewandowski. I mean, he's put up, what, 50 goals or something like that this year. Bayern did not have the Champions League success that you would look for in a guy that's just kind of the the out-and-out, the out-and-out head and shoulders. This is the guy who should win the Ballon d'Or. Um, but again, this year, you're not going to find somebody like that. And I think... Maybe you just give it to Lewandowski and say, sorry about the 2020 season where you should have won it. Here's a trophy for 2021 where we don't have a consensus winner, but you're one of the top three guys. Okay, but then does that set a precedent of just like, you know, pity ball indoors? You know, where, where it's like, oh, well, you should have won it in this season, but you didn't, right? That's no, I, 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 because, I think, because I think a conversation really quick. I think a conversation we need to talk about that I think all of us have kind of been hitting on is you know, the media, how big a you know, role does the media play? Thad brought up Emmy Martinez and how great he was. You would not see his name anywhere close to that Ballon d'Or list. Why? When you see Gigi Donnarumma there, right? What, maybe, maybe the conversation we need to be having is how is the Ballon d'Or, firstly, how are the people for the Ballon d'Or chosen, right? And it, are they chosen correctly? Are they, are they chosen fairly rather than just, you know, picking out an article from the Daily Mail or the Mirror or any of these, you know, or L'Equipe in, in France, or any of these, you know, newspapers, you pull out a headline, it's, oh, they're a Ballon d'Or nominee. You know, do, do you see what I'm trying to, like, do you see what I'm getting at with that, where, where we see a lot of guys that are, you know, yeah. normals on the, regulars on the list, but who may not deserve to be there? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, I just want to respond to that first point about, is it a pity Ballon d'Or, does it set a precedent for pity Ballon d'Ors? No, it doesn't, because the reason that you would give it to Lewandowski and say, sorry about 2020 is there was no Ballon d'Or. It's not like Lewandowski didn't win it and he got robbed by, by somebody else, right? There was no Ballon d'Or to begin with. So everybody agreed that year that it, it should have gone to Lewandowski and he didn't get it. And in this year, we kind of have a weird year. I don't think it's, it's inappropriate to say, look, we should have, you should have at least one Ballon d'Or now. Maybe you're not the, the, how do I put this? You should have had at least one Ballon d'Or. Maybe you're not the the head and shoulders guy this year, but you're one of those top three guys. You're one of the guys that'll that'll finish in second, third, or fourth place. Here's the Ballon d'Or this year because it's so difficult to get a consensus. 
will give it to you because you should have at least one Ballon d'Or and you can make an argument for you winning it this year. I don't think it well, sets a, a precedent. In- it's not like a give out type thing. But no, no, it's, 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 like a, it's like you deserve at least one Ballon d'Or. We can't find a consensus winner this year. Here's the Ballon d'Or that you deserve because you've been so great. It doesn't set a precedent because nobody robbed him of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, not, like, it's not like, you know, one year Messi wins it and, and Lewandowski gets robbed. And then the next year, it's pretty clear that Ronaldo should win it. But we're going to give it to Lewandowski because we feel bad about last year. You know, it, that's not the case here. It's, it's the simple fact that we didn't have one to give out. And he should have at least one. You know, okay. I mean, that's that's fair, and that's that's just I wanted to clarify with that because I, I mean, that's I think the Ballon d'Or is a very important award, but it's an award that's kind of almost lost its importance over the last decade, fifteen years or so, because of the Messi and Ronaldo era, right? Where it's just been kind of a back and forth with the only person in the last fifteen years that wasn't Messi or Ronaldo to win it being Luka Modric, Luka Modric in twenty eighteen. Um, with his performance with Croatia, but you know that that was that was all I was trying to do was was clarify because I I don't want this to become a you know a pity party where oh we feel bad for you Lewa here's a you know here's a Ballon d'Or I I don't want that to be how the votes get in where people feel bad that he didn't get it in twenty twenty you know and and that maybe there's that that pity feeling towards him and and I just I just wanted to clarify with uh, you know what, what what your point was but thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like would just like to say, to counter Alex's point, if we're doing a Ballon d'Or for someone who has deserved it but didn't get it, give it to Luis Suarez. Um, no, like you could put Lewandowski's last season, whatever. You can even add half of this season onto Lewandowski's best season. Not as good as Luis, Luis Suarez's best season. Nowhere near prime Luis Suarez. Luis Suarez is one of those players that I think always has deserved a Ballon d'Or. And so if we don't, if we don't see a clear winner, like, and I'm not saying we should give it to Luis Suarez. I'm saying with this logic, if we're choosing someone who deserves one for their career, but never got one, Luis Suarez. No, that's where I'm going to disagree with you because Luis Suarez was never the best player in a single season where he deserved a Ballon d'Or. You know what I mean? Like, like, sure, he's been so great for so long. You'd like to see him get some kind of recognition, but he's never had a standout season where you're like, Luis Suarez, that's the guy over Messi and Ronaldo or, or over Luka Modric or over somebody, right? That's never been the case. The reason that Lewandowski's different is there was a year where Lewandowski was, that's the guy, but he didn't get it and nobody got it. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's a distinction to be made there. Sure, Luis Suarez has been great for so long now but there's there was never a season where you're like Suarez is it he needs to win the Ballon d'Or this year it was always Messi or Ronaldo and it was like who should win it of those two guys because they were the two consensus best players in football okay but then you know I I I hate to keep bragging on you for it card but what about then 1819 or whatever it was with with Mohamed Salah right where Messi won the Ballon d'Or kind of undeservedly I think where, where Mohamed Salah, I mean, he was the best player in the world in that season. And he got, you know, as you would say, he got robbed of a Ballon d'Or. So would you go back and do that, especially with his consistency now? Would you say, okay, you know, you've been playing incredibly well consistently for about five years. You've been robbed of probably two Ballon d'Ors. Here, here's one. 
Do you know? Do you yeah. see where when you start giving it out like that, it, or when you start voting like that, it becomes a problem? No, but I, I seriously don't see a problem with that because you could you could easily say that that Mohamed Salah has been one of those guys this year, right? And and you know maybe it's an argument. Okay, like who who should get it this year, Lewandowski or Salah? Because they've been so good. Because they arguably both got robbed of one. I don't know. I, I feel like either way, however this Ballon d'Or goes this year, it isn't going to be as legitimate as prior years. So maybe you just say to a guy who's, like I said before, I'm going to repeat myself again, to a guy who's been so great this year, who you can make an argument should win the Ballon d'Or this year, who got robbed in previous years and say, okay, you should have at least one. Here's this year. I, maybe that's not a bad way to go. You know, I, I just, again, I don't, I don't think you're setting a precedent with it. I just think that however this year goes, it's not going to be, it's not going to be like a yes, 100% agree with that decision. So reward somebody who should have won it in a year's past. I think this isn't like the worst idea of all time, but I also think it is like it wouldn't work and it wouldn't make sense. Um, I don't think no matter who this Ballon d'Or goes to, not everyone's going to be happy with it. But um, I think if, if it's seen as like, we don't know who to give it to, let's just give it to someone who had a good season last season who deserves a Ballon d'Or. Because I think none of us are questioning whether, whether like Lewandowski deserves a Ballon d'Or. I think we all know that he deserved a Ballon d'Or that season. But he didn't get it. And that is just sometimes the luck of the draw. Like, All right, I, don't, so, so, I don't think he deserves it this season over a few choices. So why would no, we so give with it that? Him? With that being said, then who, who deserves to win it? Like who is, who should win the Ballon d'Or this year? The greatest player of all time, without a doubt in my mind. He has had the best stats, the best overall performances, the most men of the matches, almost times. Like, he's almost had two times the second most men of the matches of anyone. He is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And every free, in every game he plays, it's absolutely ridiculous. It shouldn't be, like, I don't think he's had the overwhelming statistically, se- like, statistic season, but, like, that it's just without with no one else having a standout standout season. This is another little messy caliber season, and he deserves a Ballon d'Or. I, I, I disagree, but I don't have I don't have a better pick than that. That's the problem. Like I don't, I don't think that if obviously this isn't a normal season, but if it was, that he has done anything, you know, super spectacular that has that. Should award him the best player in the world award, but, but nobody has this season, and that's and that's where it gets so tough. Where I, as we've been saying for the last you know twenty minutes, there is no definitive winner, and that's the thing. Like I, I, I rate Robert Lewandowski. I think he ought to win it, right? But then it, it you know, there's that little piece in the back of my mind that says, is this just you know the pity of him not winning it last year? And you have guys like you know like Messi who you win the Copa America, you are the standout in that tournament. You somehow keep Barcelona afloat with, with a floundering team, with a financial situation worse than I think any club in the world. You know, you, you, you keep a coach who 
who seems like he can barely tie his own shoes in the morning, let alone coach the biggest team on earth. <laughs> and you, you, you keep him in his job because you're so good. And out now, three months after you've left, they're talking about, you know, you've only won a single league game or two league games on the season and he's going to get fired. Like, I think that's, that is arguably Ballon d'Or worthy in and of itself, the performances that he's had. But, but, and this is where it gets difficult for me is that in any other season, that's really not that spectacular. His stats that he put up aren't that incredible, aren't that, you know, Ballon d'Or worthy. So I think it would have to be between those two of Messi and Lewandowski, but both of them, I don't feel fully deserve it, even though they'll probably get awarded. I think they, you're they forgetting not, they the fact. Not award it this year. Just forget it. You know, we're, we're not going to give it out to anybody because nobody deserves it. <laughs> Messi like, had. I think you guys are not like remembering the Copa America Messi really had. Like, I would say it's all. It's in contention to be the best, like, performance in a national, like, major or major national tournament of all time, because he put up like five assists and like four goals like that is absolutely ridiculous like it's not even close to like it's it's unheard of for like those kind of um like those numbers are just basically unheard of so so are are you guys I'm going to interrupt because we're, we're kind of repeating the same arguments that that we should we should give it to Lionel Messi are you guys in consensus that it should be Messi winning this year's Ballon d'Or. I, I, I won't say consensus. Is this, is this kind of like the, we don't have any really great options. Messi did a lot of really good stuff this year, so let's give it to him. He did the, he did the most good stuff out of anybody here. Out of nobody who did anything great, he did the most good stuff. I, I think so. I think that's... That's where the consensus falls, that he's not, you know, he didn't have a crazy spectacular season, but given the circumstances, he was the the best of the most average, I guess, which which is a terrible way to think about it. But it's, I think it's the way that we've, with with the season, with the crazy season that we've had, it's the way we have to, to give it. All right. With that being said, let's give our, instead of doing, let's, let's, instead of doing our own Ballon d'Or to finish this off, our own Ballon d'Or top three. Give me how you anticipate the Ballon d'Or top three will go. Like how, how people vote on it, how it ends up finishing up. Um, I'd say Lewandowski, Messi, Jorginho. Yeah, I, I got those same three, but I think it's a different order. I think it's going to be Messi, Lewa, and then Jorginho in, uh, finishing out the top three. I think, I think Jorginho's... I think he's getting hyped up right now, but I don't think it'll pay off for him in the end. Give me Salah, not, not in any particular order. I'm not going to give it any order. Messi, uh, Salah, and Lewandowski. I think that'll be how the top three end up finishing up. I, I, I don't know. I feel like we're kind of in consensus. There's maybe two kind of, it's like a two-horse race between the best of the average and Lewandowski and Messi. I don't know. We'll have, we'll have to see how it pans out. When, when is voting, by the way? When is, when is the Ballon d'Or distributed to its winner? I don't remember. Uh, November twenty third, I think, is the date. The end of November. November twenty so. third. So we got we got some time to wait. We can certainly come back to this when the media storylines change and and guys improve or or don't improve upon their current seasons from there and until November twenty third. 
it'll be an interesting Ballon d'Or to see how it's how it's uh, gifted out this year. I won't say gifted out. How who ends up winning it this year? It'll certainly be an interesting storyline, and there definitely won't be consensus. So we will have to come back to this when somebody ends up winning and and debate the the merits of of whether or not they should have won. Anyway, that'll do it for the Osmith Sports Talk podcast soccer segment. Um, can't wait to see who comes out with the Ballon d'Or. The international break will be done soon. We'll be back into club soccer storylines. We'll see you soon. This podcast was edited by Gabriel Aguero.